Call the meeting back to order. All right, thank you, commissioners. Welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner's Meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC-TV7. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our scheduled public sessions. In addition to our live audience this evening, we are providing remote options for citizens to watch and participate in county commissioner meetings. Citizens may watch our meeting live on our Queen Anne's County website at www.qac.org live or on Queen Anne County's television channel, Atlantic Broadband Channel 7, and now High Definition Channel 507. Citizens may also participate by joining the live Zoom meeting by going to www.qac.org slash public comment. And citizens may also email comments to public comment at qac.org. Comments received will be read during the press and public comment period on this evening's agenda. We acknowledge your participation and by attending you acknowledge that this session is both recorded and aired. Press and public comment will be taken and is limited to three minutes per speaker. If you care to speak, please sign the sheet on the information table outside in the lobby. Comments longer than three minutes can be submitted in writing for the commissioner's review. <coughs> we will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Chris Corcorino. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Uh, please stand, stay, remain standing for all the uh, soldiers and sailors who serve this country abroad. Thank you. All right, commissioners. Um, next, we have the uh, approval of our agenda for today's meeting, September 28th, and the regular and closed session minutes from your September 14th meeting. They've all been circulated for review. Do we have any additions and or corrections? Uh, motion to add uh, desk item number 11 to the agenda action item number 11. Got a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 All right, motion to approve the agenda and the minutes uh, and the agenda as amended. Got a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All in favor? 5 0. All right, thank you, commissioners. Uh, that brings us to our first uh, press and public comment section of the agenda this evening. Anybody sign up? Okay. Skip right there. I want to read over reading that statement then. Any, anybody on uh, Zoom? Gentlemen, thank you. Okay. All right, then. We can go right on into the uh, meat of the agenda. We have several action items. If you want to turn to tab number three, we can work through those. Uh, our first item is, uh, this is the updated uh, agreement, donation agreement for the YMCA of the Chesapeake. And this agreement effectively merges and supersedes a prior MOU and a prior property donation agreement, which was from 2015, respecting the construction and operation of the YMCA in Queen Anne's County. And this provides up updated operational terms, uh, county contributions and recapture provisions, and cooperative terms for use of the facility by the county for senior activities. So it's been approved by their board and our county attorney. So could I get a motion on that, please? I move to execute the amended donation agreement between the YMCA of the Chesapeake and Queen Anne County as presented. Second. We got a motion and a second from Commissioner Morand. Uh, any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, motion carries. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number two on page eight is a rural legacy agreement of sale and project agreement for a 57.79 acre property owned by Charles and Sherry Patterson, which is ready to be submitted to the Department of Natural Resources for review and approval. Total funding is provided by the Rural Legacy Grants Program through Program Open Space. This is from Donna Landis-Smith. I I'll make a motion to approve the Rural Legacy Agreement of Sale and Project Agreement for the Charles and Sherry Patterson, the fourth property. Second. All right, we've got a motion and a second. Any discussion? 
All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, the motion passes. Okay, thank you, commissioners. Next, we have a whole series of budget amendments. First one is uh, CC12. This is item three on page 34. This is for the Housing Authority facility. This is for the Riverside Remediation Project. Uh, this provides a spending authority of an additional 240000 that was in this year's uh, budget over to that remediation project, which is uh, ongoing and should be hopefully completed by early next spring. Motion to approve CC12. Second. Motion and a second. Any discussion? So, question. So, the, I thought the original bid for the remediation was was at like two hundred and fifty thousand. Right. This there. It turns out there was a whole host of other work activities. We had to remove uh, flooring, walls. There. Once we got into the project, it was much more than just mold remediation. So, uh, honestly, we probably could have. You know, one of the buildings may may have been probably better off to demolish the whole thing. It was they were a real mess. Some of those buildings. Okay. So, but we're ongoing with this project, and uh, this should be sufficient to cover the cost of the overall job. All right, contractor still the same? Uh, we had, uh, for, for mold remediation, yes, we've had to have some other contractors come in to do some remediation work, floors, windows, doors. Okay. Yep, yep, so, yep. That's all I had. Right. I mean, it was, it was a necessary project, had to be done. Right. It was, it was gonna get worse. Um, all right, any more discussion? We got a motion to approve budget amendment CC12. That's been seconded. All those in favor? Say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, motion passes. <clears throat> All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number four on page 35 is budget amendment CC13. This is for the economic development group, and this is for a grant received from the Department of Commerce for uh, online sales and telework. Motion to approve CC13. Second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, the motion carries. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 5 on page 36 is Budget Amendment CC 14, and this is a CDBG CARES grant, and this amendment recognizes uh, CARES grant funding that was obtained for emergency rental assistance. It's now being redirected for the Home Delivered Meals Program. This is 14? This is number CC14, yes. I move to approve budget of member CC14. Second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? When does the, and, and so when did the rent assistance program end? Or when does it end? It's still ongoing. There was, there was plenty of, there were sufficient allocations for rental assistance, so they needed some additional funding over into the home delivered meals uh, component of okay. their program. So it's this still is ongoing? Just, yes, it is still okay. ongoing, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. All right, any other discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right, 5-0, the motion passes. All right, thank you, commissioners. All right, the next four budget amendments are, are all for the Parks Department, and you may re remember that these were discussed during the budget, and they all sort of consolidate a, a lot of smaller capital projects into the major areas uh, of capital uh, programming that the Parks Department has, and I want to you know, commend uh, Director Steve Chanley, who's here, for working with us to sort of uh, consolidate these. So the first one is um, on uh, page, it's uh, item six on page 37, Budget Amendment CC15. This is for Parks Major Maintenance. And this is, there's no new, new, no new county dollars in any of these. It's just to sort of uh, reduce the number of capital projects and put all of them in, in larger capital project categories. Can we consolidate the whole of them into one vote? I think we should do each one separately, okay. but yeah. Do them separately? First one's hey, Parks can, Major Can we have Steve come up and, and go over every single one of these line items? We certainly can if you would like him to do that. Um, he's here tonight uh, ready for that, but I, uh, we did talk about most of these, all of these, in fact, during our, our uh, deliberations for our budget this year, so. No pickup trucks? All right, uh, move to approve budget amendment CC15, I guess it is. Second. Got a motion and a second by Commissioner Wilson. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Motion passes, 5-0. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Uh, item number seven on page 39, and this is a consolidation of several projects for budget amendment CC16 for athletic fields work. Motion to approve CC16. Second. Got a motion and a second from Commissioner Duvino. All those in favor? Aye. aye. Any opposed? 
5-0, the motion passes. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item number eight, budget amendment CC18. This is for preventative parks maintenance. 17. 17. Yeah, 17. Oh, excuse me. Parks and Congress. I skipped that one. Excuse me. Uh, yes. Item number eight on page 40 is budget amendment CC17, parks landscaping. Motion to approve CC17. Second. Got a motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Recuse. Okay. Four in favor and Commissioner Steve Wilson recuse. Motion right. Thank you, Commissioners. Item number nine on page 41 is budget amendment CC18. This is for preventative parks maintenance. Motion to approve CC18. Second. Got a motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right, five zero, motion passes. All right, thank you, commissioners. And item number 10, um, on page 42 is budget amendment CC19. This is for the uh, Chesapeake Heritage and Visitor Center bulkhead replacement. And this is a budget amendment that provides for additional grant funding and a county 50% local match total budget amendment for $388,246. And this was approved. Motion to approve CC19. Second. Got a motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Stain again. Four favor, one abstain. Okay. Motion carries. All right. How'd you just vote no? Stain. I just don't know how I feel about it, right? <laughs> all right, commissioners, and uh, just say no. That's all the action items we had on our agenda. We have um, desk item number eleven. Uh, this is uh, from the uh, Kentnares Foundation, G.G. Winley, and this is for a draw on their fund five seventy for. $63,000 to cover administrative costs and work with the, um, on the county comprehensive plan and the community plan. So there is adequate funding for that in their account. Move to approve the Kenton Harris Development Foundation request to draw 63,000 from KNDF 575 and, okay and budget amendment CC20, sorry. Second. Got a motion to second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstain? How do we vote on their account? To get their, well, the question was why do we have to vote on their accounts? This is a budget amendment to allow them to use the funds in their account. Yeah, for but why do we have an authority over their account? That's, it, it's, uh, it's in their account and we have the authority to allocate those funds towards special to special yeah i mean from the no 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 this is for the yeah this is to allocate the 63 over we have to do it every year because of the 570 fund i think that's why we have to do it because it's a 570 fund yeah i don't like that we got a vote on that sorry we got a vote what's yours stevie i didn't hear happy happy i'm happy okay five five in favor let's go we're way ahead of schedule. Time is um, six o'clock. The hearing. You don't have Ken here, so you can't do six. Yeah. So next we have a public hearing scheduled, and we have to do that six. at six o'clock. Okay. And then we have to wait for Ken Gozell. Let's do uh, roundtable. We can do roundtable if you like. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Commissioner Wilson? Yep, all I got is um, I don't know how many people, well, I'm sure we've heard of the news. So they have the um, Kerwin Commission's um, accountability board has been set up at the state level. Um, and Excuse me. the rural counties were completely shut out of it. They have four representatives from Montgomery County on it, three from Baltimore City, one from Anne Arundel, and one from Baltimore County. Now, a single rural county is a part of this. And this is the accountability board that will oversee all of our education in the state of Maryland until the end of time. Um, so I know Caroline County has written a letter. I think we should get on board and write a letter of disgust that not a single rural county was put onto this board. And uh, they picked basically the worst school systems in the state to represent. And I just think it's a horrible travesty. So I'd like to make a motion that we uh, write a letter um, in support and we can use the Caroline County letter as a basis. We don't need a nap. I'll second that motion. 
All right, got a motion and a second. You guys, some discussion? Has anyone had a chance to see the letter from Caroline County? No. No? Basically what Jack said. No, but I agree with what he said. You agree so, with it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's basically it, it's only fair that the Eastern Shore should have some representation. Well, any of the any role, any role, any role, county. Any role county. Yeah, give yeah, us well, one. You know, I'll just yeah. speak for the Eastern Shore, right? I mean that yeah, when we're we talking about education statewide, right. and you have just four jurisdictions contributing out of twenty four out of twenty four into right. it, yeah. you know, not even a region. I mean, it's 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 not adequate representation. So, not with what the weight they're going to carry. No, right. It's not. Yeah, it's horrible. Right. And, and the rural jurisdictions have different educational needs than some of the more oh popular areas of the types of programs that we have. Right. right. And so we get to fund their programs. Like that. So that's all other things that are different depending right. on what region you're in. They're missing a complete lack of perspective of, of what's important. You know, and, there, and I think there's quite a bit of uproar about it from. As there should be. And hopefully there'll be some changes made, so. All right. Any other discussion? All those in favor of uh, writing a letter in support along what Caroline County has already sent. Say aye. 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 Opposed? It's 5-0 in favor. Commissioner Dino? So um, myself and several of my colleagues uh, had an opportunity to, um, to our senior centers. And I will just, I'll, there was a lot of great things that took place. So I will just share one thing, that it was nice to see the numbers of our seniors starting to utilize our senior centers again. And, and speaking to some of the, the um, senior center managers, those numbers are getting close to 75% of the original numbers of people that used to use our senior centers. So it's good to see those folks out. Um, and I'm sure locked up during COVID, they missed you know, the programs and seeing each other. And, and so it was uh, very comforting and, and, and nice to see that uh, our seniors are back playing bingo and exercising and participating in art programs and things like that. So well done to Kathy Willis and our senior centers and their entire staff. And a great lunch too. And, and the big hot dogs. Big hot dog. Commissioner Moran. Uh, two things. Uh, I guess the first thing I would, I would say in all seriousness, uh, if you haven't had your vaccine shot, get your shot. There's no reason why you shouldn't get a shot. It's not gonna change your DNA. You're not gonna grow a tail. Just, you know, please err on the side of caution and get your vaccine. So with that being said, we had a meeting with uh, uh, Secretary Slater, uh, MDTA, everybody and anybody that has to do with State Highway uh, today. And the commissioners have come up with a resolution uh, about the Bay Bridge and about the replacement of the existing uh, aged structures. And if you've got a pillow, pull it out because I'm gonna read this resolution <laughs> into the record. And Margie uh, was so kind to make it in the smallest font possible. So we'll see what happens here. And there's no pictures on that either. And there is no pictures, okay. So this is a resolution of the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, Maryland, resolution number 21-17. Resolution in support of a replacement bridge at the current crossing of the William Preston Lane Jr. Memorial Bridge, otherwise known as the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Whereas the iconic Chesapeake Bay Bridge, the Bay Bridge, connects Maryland's eastern shore with its western shore between Stevensville and Queen Anne's County in Annapolis and in Anne Arundel County. And whereas the original two-lane span opened in 1952 as the world's longest continuous overwater steel structure and a parallel span was added in 1973, and these two spans are the Bay Bridge in place today. And whereas the Bay Bridge is situated along a vital, heavily traveled link of the US 50301 corridor that extends from I-97 to Maryland 404, and it connects businesses, healthcare, entertainment, and families of both Maryland shores, and provides the sole direct connection between recreational and ocean regions of Maryland's eastern shore, with the metropolitan areas of Baltimore, Annapolis, and Washington, D.C. And whereas the Bay Bridge is owned, operated, and maintained by the Maryland Transportation Authority, the MDTA, it is in its modern day construct as a dual 4.3 mile span with a three lane westbound span and a two lane eastbound span. And whereas the three lane span can be adjusted to compensate for traffic demands associated with periods of congestion 
using contraflow. To reverse traffic flow during peak travel periods and is one of the longest sections of contraflow used in the country. And whereas the five lanes of the Bay Bridge that currently cross the Chesapeake Bay have not been adequate to effectively manage peak periods of traffic for many years. And whereas the approaching roadway segments along US 5301 consist of six lanes, which are ge geometrically incompatible with the five lanes crossing the bay, and whereas contraflow is used daily in an attempt to correct this incompatibility, but congestion and backups have now become routine in both directions. And whereas over the last 30 years, Maryland and Delaware have invested over a billion dollars completing numerous roadway improvement projects in the region, including Reach the Beach, additional lanes along Maryland Route 2, the addition of I-97, upgrades to Maryland Route 404, and the Middletown Delaware Bypass. And whereas all of these corridors contribute to traffic crossing the same five lanes of the Bay Bridge in place since 1973. And whereas the existing bridges were designed for a 50-year life and with the eastbound span now nearly 70 years old and the westbound span now nearly 50 years old, maintenance needs and, maintenance needs and functional traffic management have become more challenging and expensive as the bridges age beyond the original design, intent, and future maintenance projects will have a significant detrimental impact on available bridge capacity and operations. And whereas in 2015, the US 5301 William Preston Lane Jr. Memorial Bay Bridge Lifecycle Cost Analysis identified maintenance and rehabilitation costs for the existing bridges to be $3.25 billion through 2065. And whereas all travelers and commerce must go through this corridor to cross the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, and whereas the lack of any alternative routes in this corridor result in backups on both the mainline corridor and along all parallel community roads, which dramatically impact the health, safety, livability, and economy of communities located near the passages and along the US 5301 corridor on both sides of the Chesapeake Bay. And whereas the travel impacts are significant and disruptive to community quality of life and ability to access routine essential services, including emergency services, patient transport, fire response, schools, and both local and regional economy. And whereas the MDTA accurately predicted average summer daily traffic volumes forecast for over 100,000 vehicles per day by 2020 that are now being realized along with future continuing trends of over 110,000 vehicles per day resulting in projected seven mile backups and seven hours of delay time by 2030. If the capacity shortfall at the Bay Bridge is not addressed promptly. And whereas the only viable solution to eliminate the bottleneck caused by the Bay Bridge capacity constriction is to expeditiously align previous transportation investments in other route improvements with a new replacement bridge and functional mainline approach roadways that are com compatible and have adequate capacity to safely move traffic on the US 5301 corridor. And whereas in recent years, Governor Lawrence J. Hogan has worked diligently to identify a solution that will maximize congestion relief and minimize the environmental impact. And whereas Governor Hogan has dedicated countless resources and efforts to provide traffic relief in Maryland for families, commuters, and businesses, and has directed improvements at the Bay Bridge to reduce current congestion and minimize delays related to required maintenance, including expediting redecking on the westbound span, installing an electronic toll collection system, removing physical toll booths, and providing free easy pass transponders to citizens while keeping tolls at historically low levels. And whereas on August 30th, 2016, Governor Hogan announced a five million, announced five million in funding for the MDTA to conduct tier one crossing. The governor announced he was giving five million. So I thought it's on. Whereas the Chesapeake Bay Crossing Study, Tier One NEPA, Bay Crossing Study, is a National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, study being conducted with public and eight being conducted with public and agency involvement to result in the identification of a preferred corridor alternative to provide adequate capacity, dependable and reliable travel times, and flexibility to maintenance and the incident management 
in a safe manner at the Bay Bridge with the evaluation of, of its financial feasibility, tra traffic alleviation, and environmental analysis. Oof. And whereas in February of 2021, the MDTA, in cooperation with the Federal Highway Administration, issued a Tier 1 draft environmental impact statement for the Bay Crossing study, and whereas the FHWA and the MDTA have announced their intent, intention to issue a combined Tier 1 final environmental impact statement and record of decision sometime in the winter of 2021-2022, and, and whereas following the completion of the Tier 1 study, a more extensive and detailed Tier 2 study must be done to thoroughly assess the preferred corridor alternative identified in the Tier 1 study, as well as the potential environmental impacts and possibly advance a new replacement bridge and approach highway or roads. And whereas communities in both Anne Arundel and Queen Anne's counties will continue to experience the impacts of increased traffic volume and delays during the multi-year Tier 2 process, and as the current Bay Bridge remains in a constant state of maintenance and rehabilitation, and whereas it is imperative that the Tier 2 environmental impact statement be funded and begin immediately and all efforts, to be, all efforts be made to expedite the lengthy and extensive federal process now therefore be it resolved by the County Commissioners of Queen Anne's County, Maryland, that it hereby finds that the best solution to maintain forward progress, support the investments already made along the US 5301 corridor, specifically from I-97 to Maryland 404, and address the existing and future traffic capacity shortfalls, is to replace the current two spans of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge with a single new replacement bridge constructed at the same location that includes a minimum of eight lanes, of eight travel lanes to provide adequate capacity and dependable and reliable travel times, and be it further resolved that the county commissioners hereby request that the Tier 1 Chesapeake Bay Crossing Study be concluded and that sufficient resources be allocated for the Tier 2 Chesapeake Bay Crossing Study, and be it further resolved that, the, that a copy of this resolution be sent to County Council of Anne Arundel County for their consideration and mutual support. Signed, the Queen Anne's County Commissioners. You done? I'm done. Good job well done. <laughs> hubba hubba. We're done. Too. We're done. There you go. <coughs> Look, I almost got us back on track. Right there. You want to mention what Anne Arundel's doing too? Excuse me. What Anne Arundel's doing as well? Yeah, we got. To yeah, and also, oh yeah, thank you, thank you, Todd. So uh, this resolution signed by the County Commissioners. Is also is also uh, the same resolution, almost to the to the letter, as what Anne Arundel County is going to introduce and vote on at their next, uh, or it's already been introduced, but they'll vote on it at their next meeting, and uh, hopefully the two of us can start fighting some of the traffic issues that uh, we're both plagued with, uh, as as two heads are better than one. So make the motion, Jim. You gotta make a motion. To accept it. it. To accept it. We gotta adopt it. To okay, adopt. I'll make a motion that we adopt resolution number 21-17. Second. All right, any discussion? I think all, it's I think, been it's, said. I think you said everything. Yep. All right. Yep. <laughs> Stevie? No, I'm ready. Okay. okay, all those in favor say aye. He's happy. Aye. 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 Any opposed? 5-0, motion passes. Is that it? Your turn to speak. Okay. Reached his limit for next month. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it is uh, of more than uh, ordinary significance that Anne Arundel, which has been, uh, I won't say blockading the situation about the bridge, but not enthusiastic, seems to have changed its uh, orientation. And now, if they sign this, support it. And that would be of immense importance to the outcome because they're 10 times our size and about 11 times our political weight so but feel the same pains we do not quite <laughs> well at least they think they do so i understand everyone does so that's issue one issue two i'm going to ask this group for a uh, make a motion that the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County uh, resolve to provide adequate money to restore the roof and windows of the old high school education building 
adequate to preserve it into the future. Uh, it's future to be determined by a committee, which has been already determined, but I'd like to see that the building was there to be used. So I would like to ask for a second on a motion to provide adequate money to keep the building intact. I'll second that. Um, so uh, do I have a second? We, we should probably talk dollars. We should probably talk dollars and 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 uh, things like that. But why, why don't we do this? Why don't we um, why don't we create a motion, a detailed motion that includes dollars and time frames and and things like that, and then and then vote on that. Because um, I mean, you don't have much to go on right now. So let, let's create one. Uh, that, that we can read and vote on in two weeks. I'll accept that. So we'll table, table the motion. Yeah, because I, I mean, I'm in favor of getting the pricing and finding out what it is and moving well, forward. It's a, we do, we, we have gotten one out of, the, uh, out of our DPW, which is 800 and some thousand dollars. Right, which, I, At which I've seen. Yeah. But I think the motion should have I'm, some hard numbers I'm in it. I accept that. Okay. okay. So we'll, right. we'll, we'll write one and table. So we'll, we'll table your motion. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Very good. Anything else? Um, no. All right. I'll be brief so we can get to our presentations and our hearing. Um, I attended the, um, there was a uh, unveiling breakfast for the new Queens County branding platform. And uh, economic director Heather Tonelli did a really great presentation about, you know, facts about Queens County, why Queens County is a great place to do business, but also a lot of details about Queens County and, you know, over the years, how it's developed and where we've come along to. So people who want to get a better feel for Queens County and the real statistics for Queens County should watch that video. It's on QEC TV. Um, a lot of really good information about Queens County versus some of the myths that you would see um, on Facebook. So I would encourage you to, you know, get facts um, and know a little bit more about, you know, what Queens County has to offer, especially if you're a new living here. You know, a lot of people who just move here, they, they move to Kent Island and they think Queen's County sort of ends at the outlets or at the Kent Narrows Bridge. Their Queen's County is so much more than that. And they go to the Queen's County Commissioner's website and go to QAC Channel 7. Right. Or you can go to QAC TV on YouTube or QAC TV on Facebook and the video is up there. So. And with that, we can go to the hearing. Yes, it's uh, just two minutes after six o'clock and we have a public hearing scheduled. Uh, for County Ordinance 21-08, and here comes Patrick Thompson, our County Attorney, and this is to adopt uh, potentially the 2017 National Electric Code, and this was introduced uh, two weeks ago as emergency legislation. So we can vote on it this evening, and then it would be effective immediately if, uh, if okay. passed. It requires four votes to pass as emergency, emergency. legislation to be effective immediately. Um, at, the at the regular meeting on September 14, 2021, Commissioner Steve Wilson introduced County Ordinance Number 2108, an emergency bill entitled An Act Concerning the Adoption of the 2017 National Electric Code for the purpose of adopting the 2017 edition of the National Electric Code, NFPA 70, as part of the building code for Queen Anne's County by amending section 10-1 of chapter 10 of public local laws. This hearing is being held Tuesday, September 28, 2021 at 6 p.m. in the County Commissioner's Meeting Room, Liberty Building 107 North Liberty Street, Central Maryland. Copies of the proposed ordinance have been available at the County Commissioner's Office during normal business hours and online on the county website. Speakers will be limited to three minutes each. Written testimony of any length can be submitted on or before the hearing date to the county commissioners. All hearing sites are accessible to individuals with disabilities. Sign language interpreters and assistive listening systems are available. Part of the record of the proceeding will be a certificate of publication indicating notice of the night's hearing was published in the Bay Times Record Observer prior to the hearing. I don't think anyone has signed up. Sign up. Does anybody here has any public comment with respect to getting 2108? I do. Come on up. Yeah. Uh, sir, can I just stand here? You know, they got to get you a mic first. 
Or sit. Just sit right here. Yeah, just, sit right, just testify right there. Give your name and address of the record. If you I'm remember. Rob Beasley, R.J. Beasley Electric. I'm a member of the Queen Anne's County Electrical Board. I'm here in favor of uh, the 2017 code being um, initiated because we're having problems with getting equipment. They physically, I don't know how in depth, how, how in depth does everybody know? Well, I go into go into some detail a little bit just for our TV audience. Okay, so what what we're running into is getting breakers that are required in the 2020 code to be able to uh, connect to appliances and so forth. Um, certain breakers that are required for peers. Uh, it's just the 2020 code is almost in front of the manufacturers, and generally they work they work hand in hand, and that's not the case right now. It's, uh, it's causing a lot of uh, problems with people trying to get finalized homes. Um, inspectors not sure of how to handle certain things. Uh, when they go to inspect, we don't have the breaker. How do we handle it? How do we move forward? So that's kind of where we're at. It's not that we don't want to move to the 2020 code. We need to move there when everything is ready. and and and. The manufacturers aren't ready, so we can't put the product in. Uh, our number one concern is always the, the community and the safety of everybody, but to be able to do that, we have to be able to get the product. So it's really hindering uh, our forward progress. So. Good. Perfect. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? All right. We'll close public comment. Yeah. So I'll make a motion to adopt County Ordinance 2108 as emergency legislation. Second. Got a motion and a second. Any uh, further discussion? I, I just, again, to reiterate what Mr. Beasley said, uh, um, you're establishing a code and yet the manufacturers to, to provide the materials to our electricians to be able to do their jobs, they can't get what they need. So. To move back to the 2017 code doesn't do anything other than allow them to use available products that are today. It doesn't change um, uh, the uh, the safety measures that they take. It doesn't change anything that, that the way that they conduct and install these things. Um, it's just it's it comes down to a simple product availability. Right. I think we've seen this with supply chain's been affected with everything, mm -hmm. right? Because of COVID, and this does not affect public safety in a negative way by voting in favor of this. In fact, in many ways, it's, it's, it's for the public because we're able to get the electric work done that needs to be done, that the public needs to be done. And, and, we're, and we're in compliance with the state. Senate Bill 762, the state um, is on the 2017 electric code. So the state has not moved forward, so there's really no reason for the county to have moved forward either. So all we're all right. doing is getting in line with the state. Any other discussion? All those in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? 5-0, motion passes. Goes into effect tomorrow. Effect tomorrow. Right? Thanks, Thank Patrick. You guys. Thank you, guys. All right, Alan, now you can go inspect all those houses tomorrow and get them final. <laughs> <laughs> go give them their finals. Make some people happy tomorrow. Take care. See ya. All right, commissioners, uh, next we have uh, under presentations, we have uh, Ken Cozell, University of Maryland, Shore Regional Health CEO, and uh, for an update, so come on up. And uh, if you look at tab number six, I believe there is an agenda in there of some speaking points that uh, these gentlemen will be uh, covering this evening. Yeah, item uh, Roman numeral two on page 23, tab number six. So, gentlemen. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen. Good evening. How are you tonight? Marvelous. Thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to spend a little time with you this evening and give you an update on Shore Regional Health. Before I get started, I'd like to introduce Dr. Walter, Walter Atha. Uh, Dr. Atha is our Regional Director for Emergency Services. So Dr. Atha has oversight responsibility of all four of our emergency departments within Shore Regional Health. Uh, so I asked him to come here today because what we'd like to speak with you a little bit about this evening is uh, we'll start with a high-level overview of COVID-19 and share with you where we are with our COVID uh, pandemic fight. We'll also then 
shift to our emergency center and some of the volume trends that we've seen in our emergency center and uh, why we're experiencing those higher volumes. Then we'll get into some conversation about the alert statuses that we've been experiencing both here in Queen Anne's as well as in Easton. Uh, and, and that's been a challenge I know that you're aware of uh, for some time. So we'll talk a little, bit, a little bit about that and make sure we answer your questions there. And then finally, we'll give you a brief update on our urgent care vision for Ken Island and for Queen Anne's County. So hopefully that uh, covers some of the items you'll talk, you want us to talk about, but if you've got any questions along the way or anything else you wanna to speak to, we'll be happy to address those as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, and I think we, we have uh, one minute and 22 seconds on the clock. <laughs> oh, no. you're, not, you're not on a timer. <laughs> <laughs> the seat is warm though, so. I'll, <laughs> well, well, again, thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be with you tonight. And uh, as you are fully aware, we are 18 months now into COVID-19. And I don't know about you, but I'm about tired of this. <laughs> I really am. But, but one thing that um, I think it's important to share is that we are so grateful and proud of the partnership that we have established between Shore and Queen Anne's County and, and how we fought this fight together. And not just a COVID fight, but how the communities have come together during these trying times to focus on working collaboratively with each other to help resolve some of these challenges. And uh, Mary Alice actually shared a brief story with me, uh, a recent story about what happened during a mass casualty event that we experienced here in the county where uh, members of the Queen Anne's County community, EMS, fire, other support personnel for the county came to the aid of the Queen Anne's Emergency Center when we needed it most, when we had an influx of patients come into our facility. They not only showed up and were present, but they were actively engaged in the care and management of those patients as they came through the emergency center. And that's the type of collaboration and partnership that just really fills my heart with pride that we are a small community taking care of each other, especially when we need each other most. And that's exactly what we've been doing with COVID over the last 18 months. It's not been easy. We, we are now in the fourth peak of this pandemic, believe it or not. And we are still seeing an enormous amount of inpatients coming through our system that are COVID positive. When I looked at the latest data today, we focus, I'll focus on the UM system, the University of Maryland medical system in total. We have 150 inpatients that are positive for COVID in our UMS facilities. And that number has been climbing over the last several weeks. So that's what we're starting to see. And it's in large part because of the Delta variant. We're seeing Delta in uh, with COVID positive patients resulting in admissions in our hospitals. And in large part, it's for patients who have not been vaccinated with either Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson. And, and Phil, you shake your head, and I do too, because we have the cure. We have the answer right in front of us, and it's just a matter of getting our community, our collective community of the, of the country behind, this, behind the, the vaccinations. Yeah, real quick, I just want to stop you there because for clarification. So when you're saying it's the Delta variant, do we have a separate test for the Delta variant versus the old Corona? Or is, I mean, how do we know it's Delta variant, I guess my question. Well, uh, it, it, it's on a population basis because essentially early on when we were trying to determine what the new pathogen was, uh, CDC and local uh, health authorities did, did actually separate out and do specific tests to confirm that it was COVID, that it was Delta variant. But as that became the dominant strain, they stopped testing specifically and now it's just Corona and assumed to be Delta. So we don't know how many deltas, how many old corona there may be? It became uh, the overwhelming predominant strain, and so they stopped uh, speciating. Okay. To my understanding, I'm not speaking, I shouldn't yeah, speak in expertise of, public. It's like influenza A versus influenza B, more or less, is where Exactly, you're exactly. Yeah. We yeah. follow the strain, and when it B becomes dominant, then we say it's flu, and that's what's out in the community. Okay. Thank you. Sure. So, as I mentioned, about 150 patients in the UM system. And what we're seeing is about 25% of those patients are sick enough to be admitted into our intensive care units. And those are the, the units where the most intensive care is needed and the sickest patients are located within our hospitals. And another 25% of those patients are on ventilators, which are mechanical breathing devices that uh, promote breathing. So that's when you're really sick and you've got this disease as far as it will likely take you. I'm sorry, Ken, out of the 150, th yeah. th those numbers are ums on here on the shore? UMS total, that's, that's oh, UMS all total. of the UMS hospitals. I was gonna take the plane down for a minute and get the shore specifically, but at UMS, that's what we're seeing. Okay, all right. How and many then of those are vaccinated? Uh, I don't have those specific numbers for the 150, but the trends we're seeing are 75, 80, 90% are unvaccinated. And then of those 150, how many did you say were on respirators? About 25%, 25% in the ICU and 25% in the uh, on, on ventilators. Are you seeing any vaccinated in ICU? 
We do see vaccinated patients in the ICU. We do. Uh, but what we, I think, <laughs> I should let the physician speak, but uh, what, what I believe we're seeing is that those are, are, are sick patients. Those are yeah, patients right. that are immunocompromised. Sure. Exactly. Comorbidities, they are very, very sick. So uh, it's, it's possible that they would have been admitted even had they not had COVID. I take your so, point. So yeah. COVID's not the primary yeah. diagnosis necessarily. Right. Um, uh, now, taking the plane down for a second at shore, what we're seeing here on the midshore is, is single digits with admissions to our hospitals. Um, so we're not in double digits, but we've seen that, that flux back. We were running zero for, for several weeks at a time and felt like we were ready to do the victory lap. But that's when we started to, to uh, increase our numbers, and now we're hovering between five and ten patients a day, primarily out of our Easton Hospital. So we're seeing that number of patients on the Eastern Shore that are COVID positive. Same relative percentage of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And roughly about 25% of those patients are in our ICUs but only about 10% are on ventilators. So that's kind of the types of patients we're seeing at the shore. Um, and again, I think our challenge has been, how do we eradicate this pandemic once and for all? So, so we, we have the solution. <laughs> and, and, but, but to be honest with you, uh, this back in August, when we made a decision as part of the University of Maryland medical system to mandate vaccines for our workforce, it uh, wasn't necessarily a popular decision then because the federal government hadn't come out yet. The governor in the state of Maryland did talk about uh, did talk about vaccinations and the importance, but the University of Maryland stepped out and said, not only do we expect that you're, you get vaccinated, but we're gonna put it as a condition of employment. And that's kind of where we're going towards as an organization over the next couple of days. On October 1st, a couple of days from now, you'll have to be vaccinated to be a, a team member at the within the University of Maryland medical system of which Shore is a part of. Which, which is gonna be interesting because you're already talking about a, a, a well underserved profession as far as your, your nursing staff. And, Absolutely. And so what's, you know, what's that gonna do to staffing that's already running thin anyway? It is a challenge, no doubt. There, it's a tough decision to make. And this challenge is not unique to Shore. It's not unique to the University of Maryland. This is a national crisis. Do you mandate in. flu shots already? Yes, sir, we do. So they already get, the ones that are working now already get a flu shot? Yes, sir, we do. That's correct. And That's we're coming up on that season as we speak. So it's October is, the, is flu season. So we're going to begin to mandate flu vaccinations for our team members as well. Now, there are a few exceptions that apply if you have a religious exemption or if you have a medical condition that's approved by a physician, you can have an exemption to being vaccinated. The other is a deferral. If you're pregnant, we can defer your vaccination during pregnancy, but when you deliver, there, there's an expectation and a time frame associated with being vaccinated. So minus those exceptions, our entire workforce within the University of Maryland medical system, about 30,000 strong, need to be vaccinated and October 1 is what our What percentage time are you now vaccinated, do you think? Yeah, so as, as an UM system, we're a slightly over 90%, so 90, 91%. Oh, well done. At, at the shore system, about the same. We're seeing about the done. same number of vaccinated. Our challenge is how do we get from those that aren't vaccinated now to vaccinated by October 1 and, and making sure that one, they're aware of the consequences, which I think everyone is at this point. We've been talking about this for some time now. Uh, that they're aware of the expectations of what we have and that they're aware of the ramifications of, of their decision. Does this run the full gamut of employees, nurses, doctors, maintenance? Uh, Everyone, everything? yes, even contracted employees that come in to do work in our facilities, volunteers, and all levels of employees, yes. Everyone. You walk into that building, you'll be vaccinated. That's correct. So that's where we are. The timeline is October 1st. We are, we are offering vaccinations, numerous vaccinations between now and then. We have enough vaccine supply to vaccinate every one of our team members who has not been vaccinated. And they can still get the J&J &J vaccine between now and October 1st and meet the policies requirements. So, so there is still that window, but the, the clock is ticking. And we really do it, gentlemen, because while working in healthcare is, is truly an honor, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to work in healthcare and provide healthcare for our patients. But with that privilege, I believe comes responsibility. And that responsibility is to do all we can to care for our patients and, our, and their visitors and our team members in as safe a manner as possible. And we know that the vaccine is the safest solution for this pandemic. And that's why the mandate exists. 
uh, it's a privilege, but we've got responsibilities and, and now's the time to, to own up to those responsibilities. So that's where we are with COVID. Um, uh, we hope that uh, we get to 100% vaccination rate before October 1st. That's our goal and we're doing everything we can to make that happen. Just for curiosity, is, is, uh, is Shore Easton, let me frame it like the state of the art in treatment. Do you do monoclonal? Do you do everything? Or would you transfer it somewhere else if it was a very complex case? I'll ask the doctor to. Uh, and I'm speaking for my colleagues in the ICU because this is not my specialty, but, but we, we certainly do take care of every patient who doesn't require a service that we cannot provide. So uh, to, to answer the first part of your question, monoclonal antibodies actually are not indicated for admitted patients. They're for patients for who? For patients who are admitted to the hospital. There are other options. There are some options that have some degree of efficacy and we do follow all the, the guidelines as they've developed. Um, and I'll speak generally as a physician again and not as an ID expert. But I will say that dealing with a pathogen that we've only known about for 18 months and declaring absolute terms is, is challenging in terms of the, the efficacy of the treatments. But we follow the standards and we, we do pro, uh, proning uh, protocol, in case you've heard of that, is that it increases the lung's ability to oxygenate if a patient is on their face down. Uh, so we do all of these. Yeah, I was here. listening to a BBC report this morning that had an extensive review of the tr treatments that were affected and steroids and monoclonals were the leading. Yes. So it's interesting you do not provide that. Is that correct? And to the community, well, we provide the, the monoclonal antibodies what's as well. What's we, we coordinate with the community resources to provide mono, monoclonal antibodies to, to patients who are discharged and are still out in the community as well. So that's one of the benefits of being part of the University of Maryland medical system is that there is a staffing pool that every member organization can tap into if needed. And our benefit is that staffing pool will help support our monoclonal antibody infusion therapies. So uh, we do not currently offer it now. We've been struggling with staffing, but with that pool coming to the Eastern Shore, likely within the next week to 10 days, we'll reintroduce monoclonal antibody treatments to our community. So we did, we were, we had to back off because of staffing, because of the pool within UMS, we have it now. And I think within the next 10 days, we'll reinstitute that on the shore. Very important as a treatment therapy to prevent hospitalizations uh, and, and to prevent those patients who are newly diagnosed from really getting sick and needing higher levels of care. That's very reassuring. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. So switching gears from COVID, uh, we wanted to state the obvious, which is notwithstanding COVID, we have been incredibly busy within our emergency center here in Queen Anne's, as well as in all four emergency departments that Dr. Uh, Atha oversees. So uh, I asked Dr. Atha to just give you a high-level overview of the volumes, the acuity levels, the types of patients that we're seeing uh, in Queen Anne's, in Easton, as well as on the Midshore. So, Doctor? Sure. Um, so if you guys were aware, um, uh, early in the pandemic, the numbers dropped off dramatically. And we were very concerned because people who needed emergency services for chest pain, strokes, and so forth were avoiding hospitals completely because we knew so little about the pathogen. And people were very concerned about about you know coming to the hospital. So our volumes dropped tremendously, and reflecting a nationwide trend of as much as 30, 40 percent drop in emergency department visits. At this point, we have reconstituted that volume at three of the four sites: uh, Dorchester, Easton, and Chestertown, to somewhere around 90 to 95 percent of pre-COVID volumes. Queen Anne's is at 120 plus percent of pre-COVID volumes. Um, uh, so, for example, Queen Anne's pre-COVID routinely saw somewhere around 45 to 50 patients a day. Our most recent record was 83 patients in one day. And I can speak to that because I was there, so I'll pat <laughs> myself on the back for that. But it was quite busy and, and a facility that is historically used to handling volumes of 40 to 50. I, I have to congratulate the staff um, for being able to handle it beautifully. Um, of course, there have been times where we're using the waiting room for the first time at the existence of the facility, reflecting the volumes going up. But we've had a very low walkout rate. Our satisfaction scores have remained high and patients are still getting the care that they come to expect at that facility. So I congratulate the staff on having weathered it and, and continue to provide exemplary care. Um, and, and I would second uh, Mr. Cazell's comments uh, from, from Mary Ellis and also from Dr. Wong about, uh, about the partnerships with uh, with EMS is that is that the understanding it, back and forth in terms of the challenges faced on both sides 
of patient care delivery and the continuity of that, the relationship between EMS and the facility, I, I, I think they remain strong. People are, of course, frayed thin. This is a very challenging era, uh, both in EMS and hospital care and every other delivery of healthcare system and, of course, every other field in the country, not just healthcare. Um, but tensions run high. And, uh, and we've dealt with situations that have flamed occasionally, but generally the relationship remains as amicable as it has been in the past. Now, I, as you know, we, all of us follow the, uh, follow the uh, numerics and metrics of the system, and certainly as the summer wore on, it was very clear that the that the alert system, which is I, before we get into whether the alert is a good or system or not, that thing began to back up in a very alarming kind of way because normally in summer we'd be dropping down to the very low digits or zero or something, and here we were at 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, then it turned 100. Then it turned 145 out of 166 hours in a week. And then one week it was 225 hours, which was, I'd never seen a number like that in all my days. And I, I wrote you a letter, mm -hmm. and that letter said that it concerned Queen Anne's County that if the ER was that, the whole operation was that stressed at this time of the year when we wound up down in the deep days of January, when the load really comes on with ear infections and backups in the ER room, how did, you know, what, what was it? I wasn't interested in it so much in the descriptive which you sent us, saying, talking about retention and recruitment and so on, as it was a predictive statement about how you thought things would shape up this winter when it seemed to me nothing but more stress lay ahead of you. So that's what I'm interested in. Thank you for that question. And, and I, I think what we've seen over that's trending is that when we are most busy, it's usually that everyone around us is busy as well. And what we've found is that there's a correlation between when we're on alert status in Queen Anne's for yellow alert with other hospitals on the other side of the Western on, on the Western shore also being on alert status because they're incredibly busy as well. So oftentimes those patients are brought over to Queen Anne's. Now we, we see them in Queen Anne's. The acuity of those patients, the, the degree of their illness is, is usually sometimes higher than what we are accustomed to in the emergency center at Queen Anne's. So those patients are dropped off from the Western shore. They're cared for in Queen Anne's. They're sicker, so they take a little bit more resources and they're harder to place to that next level of facility, either back in Anne Arundel County in a nursing home or assisted living facility, or in a healthcare facility, which is all packed with inpatients and on other types of alerts. So it's an incredible challenge, and we see that correlation happen pretty regularly in our Queenstown facility. There's a direct correlation there of those patients that come east from the west. And I think it's gonna take a strategy, uh, Commissioner, to sit down and talk with our partners across the western shore and figure out a way that we can work together more closely to prevent these types of transfers back and forth because it does have an effect on our emergency center, which isn't designed to be the same as a hospital ED. It's a freestanding emergency center and there are some limitations to the types of patients we should be seeing in that facility. And I think we have to just work collaboratively with our partners on the other side of the shore to no, understand I, and appreciate that. I, I certainly accept that and, and appreciate the fact we had heard reports that they were getting overloaded over there. And certainly the numbers we see constantly mirror your numbers also. Right. You know, you'd be at 140, they'd be at 80 or 90 or 100 hours. But that notwithstanding, it doesn't really answer the question what you think are our citizens going to be sitting for three, four, five, six hours? in January and February when the ear infections and all the school, normal school traffic starts to come in. I, I, the reason I bring this up is not to badger you. It's for a somewhat different motive, which is that if, if we can drive any more people into getting vaccinated, knowing that the system in the winter is gonna be even under more stress, it would seem to me that having the public be aware of that would be positive for the public. So that's Very not an intention to, you know. For the folks that may be on the fence about getting a vaccine or not, yeah. this could push them 
to making the decision the to point. go ahead and yeah. get it done. Absolutely. Our wait times in the e, uh, ER are growing. Our, our, yeah. our ability to treat you in a timely manner is growing. And in some part, it is because of unvaccinated yeah, community members. There's this no is doubt. no attempt to, you know, to complain or whine about things. I'm just concerned, and all of us are, about the, the capacity of the system. If you're stressed out now, what the hell is going to be improving when you got more load and more burnt out people in, in, in late December? Mr. And I, one of your members, well, it's yes. Pardon. Okay, sorry. They had said something. They want to share something that's on the screen. This now. is the graph. Oh, that's the. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Thank you. Uh, but that graph depicts the volume increases over time. And what you see at the lowest dipping point there, about three quarters in from the slide left to right, is COVID. That's the COVID volumes at Queen Anne's Emergency Center when we were in, in the beginning stages of COVID. Right. And as you can see, as we've climbed out of COVID into different peaks, the, the latest point on the far right-hand side is where our volumes are today. And that's what Dr. Atha was saying, is that depicts kind of that high level of acuity and high level of patients that we're seeing today in Queen Anne's. So it did dip and it's growing and growing and growing over time. And in large part, it's, it's COVID vaccinations, but it's also what Dr. Atha said before, it's, it's people that have pent up need that didn't experience the emergency department when they probably should have uh, several months ago. And we see it, I mean, our, our transport volume is, we hit almost 90 last week, if I'm not mistaken, and our typical run would be more 60 or something. So it's really walking up here too. And we recognize though, that there are limita staffing limitations. So there are certainly challenges with staffing and making sure that we've got enough staffing, not just in Queen Anne's, but in Easton. So we can support the flow of those patients through the ER and to the inpatient units. So we can accept more patients in the ER. Dr. Atha and I and a bunch of others are working on solutions there. But we also feel like another solution, and it's not gonna happen unfortunately before November or December, but another solution for Queen Anne's County is an urgent care center here. And it is getting urgent care. So those types of illnesses that don't require emergency department care can be seen safely, timely, and a great experience level. And unfortunately, we are still working on a lease agreement for the space that we've identified. We haven't got to terms with two national companies trying to get to terms on their agreement before they'll sign a lease agreement for us. Uh, but we are working that to the very end degree. And when we get that lease signed, and we hope we're close, um, it'll take about 16 weeks, about four months to retrofit the space that exists into an urgent care facility. And it's right on Kent Island and we'll be able to see patients well, in this community news, for sir. urgent care. But uh, I, we can't start that 16, month, uh, 16 week time clock until we get this lease agreement signed. And unfortunately there's, uh, some of that's out of our control. We have to have the two parties that are involved with us getting to yes before we can get the lease agreement signed. So that's kind of where we are, but that's our, that's our 10,000 foot view of COVID, the implications of violence, <coughs> the alert statuses, and, and our, one of our strategies to address some of the challenges here. Just for the curiosity, because everybody in this room and everybody in the United States hears about the staffing issue, what is it that, what is it that ran the staff off? I mean, I mean, a very interesting point is you constantly, first it sounded like they were getting hired somewhere else, but everywhere you went. I, I think it's multifactorial. It's, it's some of our team, nurse, let's, let's say nurses in general for a second. Some of our nurses have decided to retire. They are at that retirement age and they just right. said, you know what, I'm, I'm, thank you, I'm done, I'm, I'm burned out, I'm gonna retire. Others have said similar things, but they're not at retirement age, so they've gone out of the profession, maybe into a doctor's office status, maybe into a, a lesser acuity type of hospital environment, so they're still in the profession, but they're not in the ER or in the inpatient unit. So, so some have migrated into a different type of nursing position. Others have migrated out of the field completely and just have transformed their careers into something different outside of hospital, healthcare, and nursing in general. So we're seeing more and more of that, and that just accelerated. And then the fact that we're having fewer come back into the system to backfill those that left, that, that's where the challenge Do you see it across the whole spectrum with the PAs and the nurse practitioners, or is it confined to the nurse? I, I, I don't, and maybe Walt has a better perspective on this. I think the PAs and the nurse practitioners are, are growing. They're, they're growing in numbers and strength because I think they're gonna fill a niche for us. They're gonna fill a, a specific void that's necessary and essential yeah. to support the providers, the, the medical the physicians, 
as well as complement the nursing staff's uh, care, care care plan. So Thanks. I think that's going to continue to grow over time. Okay. And, and hospitals have to pivot to address that and, and, and incorporate them more closely into the care model. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it from me. Any other questions? No. Oh, real quick, just out of curiosity. I said no. No. I started putting my papers together. <laughs> just real quick. So uh, elective surgeries, how's that still kind of on a standby thing? Great question. Uh, at, at points in times during Great COVID, question. <laughs> at, at points in times during COVID, we did have to back off on elective right. surgeries. And the reason why is because the great staff that works in the operating room has said, we'll transfer our skill set to the inpatient units sure, because sure. there was a, such a void so there. Is that where you are still? No, uh, well, they are fantastic. I, we are blessed because it, it worked out well and we've learned from it and we've modified and tweaked it so it's, it's going to be even more effective. But today we're at 100% capacity with our operating room, so we haven't made that transition. But that's a tool in the toolbox that we may have to use after October 1st or if right. these shortages and challenges continue. Sure. But today we're at 100%, but the nursing teams and our ORs that have made those transitions have been incredible. The inpatient unit nurses have accepted them and embraced them as part of the care team there. And it's helped us through some very dire straits. Well, I think it's important that you leave those hero signs up in front yeah. of your facilities because they, they still are. I agree, and, and I agree wholeheartedly. And, and our entire workforce is the heroes because it takes an entire care team to care for a patient or support services. Our nurses, our techs, our medical technologists, imaging, our doctors too, I guess, to some degree. I, I can't speak for my fellow commissioners, but, but 2019 and 2020 saw me at the um, Easton Memorial Hospital, uh, regional hospital for a couple of things that I had to deal with it, three days, four days that was there on both occasions. And the nursing staff just, I mean, you can't say enough great things about them. They were just amazing. Thank you for that. Just shy spectacular. Often wonder where they hide their wings. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And we are blessed and we're a community taking care of each other. And that's what we're all about. So again, thank you for our partnership. Thank you for the support we get from every single person in Queen Anne's County and, and the support team. We can't do what we do without you. It's still gonna be rough roads ahead for us, but uh, we'll get through this together. So, and the, and the public can help get your COVID vaccine get your flu vaccine, yes. go to your primary care physician regularly so it doesn't develop into something that requires critical care or the ER. That's some stuff that the public can do to sort of help out on this. And that's so we have the space for those who really need it to get that emergency treatment that they need. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank I, you I so much. I also want to thank you. My, I had one of my daughters at the ER in Queenstown this summer with a very life-saving diagnosis. You guys were fantastic, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We'll pass that on and we appreciate your support. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. That's it. That's all we have for the commissioners tonight. So um, we can do press and public comments. If there's any press and public comments. Nope. Entertain a motion to adjourn. Uh, make a motion to adjourn. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye.